Actually, it is my birthday today. <laughs> I hadn't really thought that through when I called for that song. I want to say something about that song before we plunge into our topic. That song was released in 1997 by a satirical left-leaning Canadian pop group called Moxie Fruvis. And it includes lines like, Fighting for you in a blue-eyed Jesus, America first, the rest get the pieces. You know, rhetoric that you could very easily hear these days from a right-wing extremist group, from a militia group, from the Boogaloo Boys. Um, and it, it's a reminder, one of the things we'll be talking about on the show today, it's a reminder that if a Canadian left-leaning pop group could suss out these memes and tropes in 1997, it's another reminder that this stuff has been around for a long time. It has a long lineage. You know, Timothy McVeigh was not a lone actor. He was embedded and interconnected intellectually, if that's the right word, with a whole bunch of people who preceded him. And they've all read the same books and there are people coming after who kind of build on the story. And so, yes, this is a show today about extremism. And it's particularly about extremism in a time of a pandemic where some of the impulses of extremists begin to pivot towards pandemic restrictions. And that in turn becomes an argument for violence or plots of violence. You're all aware, I'm assume, of the plot to kidnap the um, governor of Michigan. There's a, now an indication that the governor of Virginia was also a possible target in that. So joining us today here for the beginning is Amy Cooter, a senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University and somebody who was very, very closely and, and was sort of one-to-one -one, uh, studied specifically the Michigan militia movements. Uh, Mark Pitkavage uh, is a historian and senior research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. Prior to joining ADL in 2000, Dr. Pitkavage trained law enforcement officers on domestic terrorism on a Justice Department anti-terrorism program created after the Oklahoma City bombing. You just heard me mention Timothy McVeigh. So, um, Maybe just we could begin a little bit with the politics of this. I've been using the term right-wing extremists, but the politics of this get a little bit murky. I mean, here we are in an age of Donald Trump, who in some ways could be said to personify intrusive government. He is using military troops to clear out protesters at Lafayette Square. He's starting a warp Operation Warp Speed vaccination program. So... Do the politics of these groups get a little murky at this point? I think they absolutely do. I have a tendency to use the term nostalgic groups instead of right wing because they do tend to have some views that don't exactly fall on the traditional right wing end of the spectrum. Just for example, many of them are very typical libertarians as, as they think of themselves as being and support things like abortion and gay rights, which doesn't usually fit with that with that trope. Um, you know, and Mark Pitkavich, I want to turn back to you and, and ask the question that I asked at the beginning, apparently in the middle of technical problems I didn't know about. But, you know, it's I, we think of these groups as resisting certain kinds of things. In the past, um, taxation, uh, gun control, 
um, disappointment about America's military behavior. But it's kind of unusual to see them pivot towards a public health question. Can you say a little bit more about what you've observed? Uh, how does the whole pandemic restriction thing bleed into to, to militia movements? Um, sure, I'd be I'd be happy to. And with regard to the militia movement, um, there's a it, it connects largely in two ways. And once you once you understand those two ways, it makes perfect sense. Um, the first is the militia movement's relationship to the federal government and to state governments. Um, for most of the history of the militia movement, the main impetus for the movement has been on antagonism towards the federal government, which it believes has been collaborating with a conspiracy to slowly strip Americans of their rights, um, after which they would be absorbed into the New World Order conspiracy as slaves. Um, in recent years, however, because the militia movement came out strongly in support of Trump, they have had to uh, de-emphasize their, um, their focus on federal government conspiracy theories and look for other enemies. And in some cases, they found it in the form of Antifa or other left-wing um, activists. But they have also found it in opposing state-level measures that they don't like, um, such as gun control measures like red flag laws and um, anti-pandemic measures such as uh, lockdowns or mask uh, uh, regulations. And you could combine that with the fact that historically, the militia movement has had ants in its pants about pandemics. And the reason is because the militia movement has long believed that um, the, the federal government might use a pandemic as an excuse uh, or even stage a pandemic as an excuse to declare martial law, suspend the constitution, take away your guns, do whatever they want to do to you. And so when you combine the historic uh, paranoia that the militia movement has about um, pandemics uh, with the reconcentration of anti-government anger at the state level rather than the federal level because of the militia movement support of Trump, you can see how things like um, lockdowns and other pandemic measures become very inviting targets for militia anger these days. You know, um, Amy Cooter, I have to ask, what is it about Michigan? I mean, obviously there are militia movements in other places, there are extremist movements in other places, but Michigan has been at this long enough to warrant at least one pop song. I mean, this isn't a new thing. What, 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 is there a specific aspect of Michigan that brings this about? I think there are a variety of factors that go into making Michigan a relative hotspot here. It's not just one simple variable that goes into this equation. Uh, but just to name a couple of the important ones, I think Michigan as a state sort of has this, this broad cultural view of hunting, of fishing as being things that people generally value. Folks who use firearms for other purposes often see it as not too far of a stretch to then perhaps join something like a militia for whom firearms are a very central component. A lot of folks, even if they aren't militia members there, know people who are and don't really see them as being an outlier. I also think it helps in terms of the militia prevalence that Michigan was one of the very first states to have what we identify as a modern militia, which means that they've had leaders, they've had effective role models there for a long time, who are also fairly public compared to some of them in other states. 
and they kind of serve as a, a touch point for people to go to if they want to start a similar group. There's also just more knowledge about them as a result of that as well. Can I, can I follow up on that? This is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. There's there's a, a group with a Facebook page here in Connecticut, and they are not, I think, in any way explicitly a militia group. And most of them are just kind of anti-science COVID doubters and anti-government restriction people. But I see them increasingly reposting stuff that is a little bit more militaristic or a lot more. I see them um, exalting or at least supporting the kidnapping plot in Michigan using some of its justifications as their own justifications. And Amy, I guess I sort of wonder about the power of imitation and repetition that, you know, a, a person who's an unlikely participant in extremist politics somehow or other on social media winds up parroting a lot of it. And maybe even, I don't know if anybody can say anything about this, maybe even ultimately gradually self-radicalizing just by doing that. I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, the reality is we need to do a lot more research on exactly how social media and the internet play into some of these networks these days. People are doing it, but it gets more complicated as major platforms like Facebook shut down their pages and they get a little bit more off of those main channels as a result. But there's certainly some indications that extremists in a variety of ways, whether it's kind of political extremism or conspiracy theory extremism, tend to make interesting bedfellows, um, have the potential to, to stir each other up online, and then, of course, watch each other's YouTube videos and get individually invested more and more over time in certain aspects of different related theories. Right. And, you know, Mark, uh, I guess uh, one of the pressing existential questions of my life is uh, said by Cary Grant in North by Northwest. And he says to Eva Marie Saint, how does a girl like you get to be a girl like you? And, and I sort of wonder at that about people who join these movements. I mean, some of them may be brought up in, you know, extremely ideological doctrinaire environments, but I'm guessing more of them just, you know, kind of come to it in the way that we're talking about. Well, it's, it's true. Um, there are a lot of uh, paths to extremism. Um, in the, the ADL Center on Extremism over the years and in our, our, uh, the people in our regional offices who look at extremism in particular areas, we have a, a very active and great office in Connecticut, for example. Um, you know, we have observed um, so many different paths that, that individuals have taken to extremism. In some cases, they may be brought up in a, a household in which those viewpoints are very common. In other cases, they they may be highly influenced by someone influential to them, um, um, you know, who, who, especially if they're impressionable. So it could be um, an older brother, it could be a, a romantic partner, it could be a boss. In other cases, they may have had some sort of life-changing event or experience, and they seek uh, reasons uh, for to explain what they what happened to them, and they come across extremist reasons and buy into that. Um, the circumstances, you know, the different combinations uh, are different for every individual, um, but uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, they they can all end up in that same spot no matter what route they take. So. Uh I also want to ask, I guess it's time to mention the big orange elephant in the room here. So, Amy, if we go back to, I think it was April, there were protests 
by some of the same people and some of the people who kind of looked like the people who were part of the kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer, but they were up at the Capitol. They had guns with them, which I guess you can do uh, in, uh, in Michigan. But one thing that was a little bit different was that the president tweeted, all caps, liberate Michigan. So, I mean, in terms of normalization, what might be considered pretty extremist ideas, I mean, there's no way of avoiding talking about the role that President Trump has played. In fact, Governor Whitmer herself uh, has brought that up. Um, maybe you could say a, a little bit about it, and then we're going to a very quick break and come back. Sure. So uh, we've seen during Trump's entire administration and, and even earlier in his campaign that many groups, not just militias, but many under that nostalgic umbrella where they have sort of a backward looking view of an ideal past, have watched him for various different kinds of inspiration. His overt comments on immigration and on Muslims in particular kind of fit with their long term concerns, make them feel like they are legitimized in some of their thoughts and actions. Some of them also watch for more subtle things and talk about him on their message boards as sending subtle signals. One Example of that that's gotten some attention that wasn't so subtle as some of it was his stand back and stand by comment to the Proud Boys. And we know that they responded very rapidly, changing their logo, talking about that on their message boards as well. Saw that as a call to action, basically. Right. There was, yeah, even in the course of that debate, before the end of that debate, they were doing stuff like that. And we're kind of doing this kind of, we knew it. We knew he liked us. We knew he was on our side. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, this, that does seem like terra incognita somehow. All right. We're, we're we need to take a break right now. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, this is a very short break, not a fundraising break. Don't panic. We'll be back in just a few seconds to talk more. Our government destructive is our right and duty to abolish tyranny is overcome. Grab your guns, time to demolish the show. And we're back. Uh, all right. So <laughs> I, I'm dealing with different technical things. So I sometimes don't even know when I'm back. So um, we're talking about extremist groups. Uh, our guests today uh, are Mark Pitcavage, who is a, a historian and senior research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Amy Cooter is a senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt. University, who has intensively studied uh, militia movements, uh, especially in Michigan itself. And so, um, Mark Pitcavage, I think maybe this is, you probably didn't hear me say this at the beginning, because I don't think you guys on Zoom could hear me. But, you know, part, actually, one of the reasons that I got interested in this was listening to a terrific podcast that the BBC did that featured Mark Pitcavage. Uh, it was called Two Minutes Past Nine. It was about the bombing of the Murrah Building. And one of the things I was reminded of, Mark, is that I think when somebody like Timothy McVeigh reaches the attention of the American public in such a gruesome and garish way, it sometimes can seem like a sort of loner, outlier kind of event. And what I was reminded of in that podcast is that these things have a really long lineage, you know, and these people have read the same books, you know, they've read stuff like the Turner Diaries, they know the same lingo. And so whether you go back to the the Covenant, the Sword and the Arm of the Lord, or McVeigh, or the Elohim community, there, there's just sort of, this isn't, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not a pop-up thing. It's been in our DNA for a while. Maybe you could say more. Um, sure. 
Well, I think, you know, Timothy McVeigh is certainly, you know, not representative of the militia movement as a whole. He was unusual in a number of respects. Um, but he certainly was, you know, he certainly was part of a right-wing ecosystem. He actually had a foot in each of the two major spheres of the far right, the anti-government far right and the white supremacist far right. And, um, uh, uh, you know, absorbed literature and absorbed ideas um, from both of those segments. Um, uh, you know, for every every major extremist movement has its own sort of ecosphere where you have people producing not just simply outward facing propaganda, but, you know, inward facing um, material as well. And people learn who the martyrs in their movement are, and they learn about seminal events in their move, the history of their movement. Um, they learn about what is important and what things you can say and what things you can't say. So you get sort of a, you know, you get this sort of ecosphere and in some cases even a full-fledged subculture develops that really um, adds another dimension beyond just the pure ideology. So uh, Amy Cooter, one of the things that I probably made a mistake of doing is talking even about militia movements as though they were one thing. I now know from reading your work that they are m multiple things and that the, the militia movements sometimes identify differently, don't agree. Uh, I'm assuming there are people in militia movements in Michigan right now who think this whole kidnap Whitmer thing was uh, an act of folly. Oh yes, most of the groups that I have contact with think the whole thing was ridiculous and obscene. And many of them point to the fact that a member in another group reported some of their behavior to federal officers as proof from their perspective that most militias are law-abiding, that they're doing the right thing, that they aren't on that extreme plotting end of the spectrum. There does tend to be quite a bit of variation even within the movement itself. I think it's important we focus on where those boundaries are. We live in a world of limited resources, and I also have evidence from my research that the more we lump them all together and describe them all as violent or all as extremist, it actually has the potential to move some people in a more radical direction make them less likely to cooperate with law enforcement and other things like that. You know, uh, Mark Pitcavage, this gets into a question that I have that probably nobody can answer, but it came up also in the New York Times today, which is another thing that's been happening is, I mean, we've sort of seen an effort to spread distrust of the government, particularly in terms of COVID, that seems to further radicalize the but the other area of distrust being spread right now, especially by President Trump, has to do with voting, whether this election on November 3rd is itself a legitimate process or something that should be at minimum policed and then maybe a little bit more. President Trump has used the word army. He wants an army of people at the polls watching things. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot about a prediction, but should we be somewhat worried about this kind of violent activity cropping up on Election Day? Well, one of the, the things that I'm most concerned about for Election Day itself um, and is the fact that uh, the left and the right today, and not just the extreme left or the extreme right, uh, but the whole left or the whole right, are both with regard to the election, um, fearful, suspicious, paranoid, angry, um, each is convinced for different reasons um, that the other side um, may be planning um, or, or 
uh, is already engaging in shenanigans, um, illegal, unlawful shenanigans to do something to affect the election. And I think uh, that is going to bring out people um, on election day or certainly has the potential to not to um, show up at the polls to intimidate people, but to show up to be sort of a Sherlock Holmes and sort of look for misdeeds on the other side. Um, of course, problems can come in um, very easily in all sorts of ways. For example, regardless of whether their intent was to intimidate, um, other people can be intimidated by their appearance. Um, they may be looking for misdeeds. Well, they may wrongly interpret someone's actions um, as a misdeed and try to intervene or step in. Um, people may call groups to respond to the presence of groups that they see or perceived groups that they see who may not actually be there. Um, you know, there's so much of a potential for volatility, for bad judgment, for anger, uh, for all sorts of things uh, that could potentially go wrong in, you know, one spot here, one spot there. And I, I hope that doesn't happen, um, but we're sort of a society on edge right now, and there's a potential for it. You know, um, Amy uh, Cooter, I'm just also wondering, and this is sort of an, an amorphous question, but I'm also wondering whether there's any way to put the lid back on the top, uh, on the pot, or whether we can put the toothpaste back in the tube. In other words, anger seeps out and you start seeing the, this kind of activity. You talk to these people a lot. You know a lot of them, including the ones, as we just said, who are less extreme. But is, is there any way that you can lower the temperature on the stove uh, a little bit? Is there a way that, I don't know, six months from now, this would seem like a little less of an alarming situation? I think that's a great question and another one that doesn't have an easy answer, unfortunately. I think that long-term, at least, the best thing we can do is reinvest in ideas of the legitimacy of the system, not have people with a lot of authority um, speaking about problems in the system that we don't have clear evidence of even existing in the first place, um, work on having more leaders who can bring people together as, a, as opposed to focusing on divisiveness and thinking instead about how to sort of bring people back to the table on both sides of the political spectrum to avoid that kind of um, extreme, what we call otherization in sociology, pushing people to see each other as the enemy like Mark was talking about. So, yeah, Mark Pitkavich, I want to give you an opportunity to, to be constructive here at the end of this conversation. So, you know, in a way, what happens is we, we otherize, to use Amy's terms, each, each side does that with the other, right? It's, it's helpful to enforce norms on one side to point to the extravagances or extremes on the, on the other side. But are there ways to get some of the less crazy people back to the table with other less crazy people from a different ideology? Um, well, it's, it's this, that's something that's really difficult to do. Um, it's difficult to talk people um, off, of a, off of a ledge, so to speak. Um, sometimes they, sometimes what you have to do is you have to wait until they have expended their energy and they're sort of tired. Um, and at that point, um, you may be able to step in and try to have conversations. You know, something that the FBI did with a, you know, a small amount of success, at least in the 1990s, was to do a lot of um, knock and talks with people in the militia movement to, to go to a militia group to meet with the leader or leaders of that militia group, say, look, 
I just want to talk with you. I want to get a sense of what you're about. Um, I want to want you guys to, to, to understand what we're about mm -hmm. with the idea of building up relationships so that perhaps in the future, if that, not because they were sympathetic to that militia group, but, but if that militia group in the future actually saw somebody who was much more wild or wanted to do something dangerous, that there was at least a chance that someone might reach out to the FBI and let them know, which has happened um, on occasion where the FBI has gotten tips from people within an extremist movement itself. Um, and that has enabled them to start um, criminal cases. Um, so there's some things you can do, but it's when someone is, when someone believes something really strongly, whether it's an ideology or uh, a religion or something else, um, you know, it's, it's often difficult to convince them of something that's, you know, not, it doesn't even have to be diametrically opposed to their beliefs, but just simply other than what they want to accept. Right. I mean, it, there's sort of an inertia here. Once the rock yes. is rolling down the hill, it's likely to keep rolling down the hill more, not suddenly start rolling up the hill. We have to take a little break in this segment. I want to thank uh, Mark Pitkavich and Amy Cooter, great guests. When we come back, and we have a fundraising break first, but when we come back, one of the things that really struck me is how openly a lot of these groups use social media to communicate and proselytize. We're going to talk to somebody who really looked hard about one, well, the big one, how the Facebook tries or doesn't try to police this kind of talk. But before that happens, yes, we're going to take a little break for fundraising. It is my birthday today, so one thing you could maybe do is you know, give me a little birthday present. Make a pledge to support public radio. Here come the nice people to tell you why. I hope you guys are hanging in there with us. We are having some technical problems today, which has forced me onto Zoom uh, and also made it impossible for me to hear Cat Pastor telling me what to do, which will now expose me as an even bigger Ted Knight radio fraud than you know I already was understood to be. Uh, but special thanks to Cat Pastor there in the studio, keeping things hopping, even under crisis conditions, and to Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this particular episode. And we'll be back tomorrow with the nose. We're, we're nostalgically watching the West Wing, but specifically a five-episode arc where they have to decide what to do about divulging critical information about the health of a president, which they have not. Uh, so far been forthright about. I can't imagine why we would be interested in such a thing right now. Uh, all right, so back to our conversation about extremism, about uh, militia groups, uh, about alt-right and hate groups. Joining us uh, right now is Andrew Morantz, a staff writer for The New Yorker. He writes about technology, social media, and the alt-right, and he's the author of Antisocial Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. So, Andrew Morantz, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, I think some people in seeing the coverage of the plot to, to kidnap Governor Whitmer were a little surprised that some of the plotting, or at least the introductory pre-plotting, took place openly on social media platforms, whether it was Facebook, whether it was TikTok. I'm sure federal law enforcement is infinitely grateful uh, to for, for that fact, because it makes them easier to catch. And I'm guessing also you weren't particularly surprised by that, that, that some of these groups felt pretty comfortable just talking their 
in a pretty accessible environment. No, no, it, it's not surprising. I mean, it's shocking, but in a sense, it's not surprising given that, you know, a lot of these groups, um, there is a very, very fine line just according to their own uh, rhetoric between belief and action, right? We we tend to think, oh, you know, sticks and stones, you know, you can believe whatever you want as long as you don't act on it. But we know that's not how human behavior works, right? If you believe, let's say, in QAnon, which says that there's a cult of satanic pedophiles overrunning the government and the media and Hollywood, some percentage of people who believe in that are going to act on it and it's going to get really grim and really violent. So this is why, actually by Facebook's own definition, this is why they're, uh, in theory, interested in taking down hate speech because it can so easily lead to real-world violence. It's just that they don't actually do it all that often. Right. Well, one of the things highlighted in your piece is the difference between Facebook's outward-facing message about this and inward-facing uh, message about, about it. The, the conversations you had with former uh, Facebook employees, particularly those who had been involved heavily in moderating uh, content reveals kind of an internal culture where the message is different from what we hear uh, when Facebook just talks to the rest of us. Right. And and to some extent, that's sort of standard, you know, corporate subterfuge, you know, that a lot of big companies in the world uh, don't really say what they mean because they're interested in turning a profit. I think one thing that's different about Facebook and other social media companies, you know, you mentioned my book, the, the subtitle of that book um, includes two groups of people, online extremists and techno-utopians, meaning the people who founded these companies and who are kind of so blinded by their own um, perceptions of themselves as, you know, generous, gregarious philanthropists who are giving these free communication tools to the world that they are, really have a lot of blind spots when it comes to the downsides of that freedom. And so I think those two groups wittingly or not, work in tandem with each other, right? The, the, these new disruptions and new freedoms to our informational ecosystem work hand in hand with the people who exploit that power vacuum for nefarious purposes. So yeah, when it comes to Facebook, their, their outer message is all about making the world more open and connected. Internally, they're much more frank about saying to their content moderators, look, obviously, you know, the thing you're looking at is obviously hate speech, or it's obviously a violent threat or it's obviously graphic content, but we're not going to take it down uh, essentially because it doesn't fit with our business interests to do so. Yeah, let's talk about business interests. So one of the things that distinguishes the digital landscape, uh, you know, the post-digital revolution media landscape is you can really, at a pretty granular level, uh, measure what kind of content gets people excited, gets them acting, gets them clicking, gets them involved, and what doesn't. And so sort of deep DNA of social media and Facebook in particular is the idea that the stuff that gets people excited is the good stuff. It's the stuff we make our living off of. The problem is that all tends to be this kind of you know, limbic system, pretty, uh, you know, visceral kind of content. Right. So is that the thing that they can't ultimately shake? It's, it's, is that what they can't really break up with is their dependence on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. They, um, scientists talk about activating emotions. Um, you know, the activating emotions are the ones that are the lifeblood of internet virality. It's, it's just as you put it, it's anything that, that excites your limbic system, anything that, that, gets you to react in a kind of twitchy lizard brain way. And, you know, in fairness, there are positive emotions that do that, you know, humor or excitement or awe. But on average, it's easier to do that by exciting 
what I call in the book, antisocial emotions, uh, disgust or loathing or fear or prejudice. So the companies can talk all they want about giving people a microphone and creating avenues for free expression, but they're tilting the playing field. You know, this isn't just a flat reflection of what people naturally are inclined to talk about. This is like a you know, a big casino where you're constantly playing a slot machine and the slot machine has certain lights and sounds and, you know, other manipulative things that are that are designed to keep you addicted and to keep you scrolling through. So, you know, it's not that there aren't, you know, individuals with agency. It's just that that agency is being manipulated. And it's, it's not just, you know, as simple as saying, do you like free speech or do you not, which is what the companies would have you believe. Right. So reading your piece, what becomes clear is that there's a lot of constructed rationales, one might say rationalizations, uh, within the company so that things like this can go forward. I mean, there, there's so many jaw-dropping moments in your article, but one of them is you're talking to these two of these former content moderators, and one of them says, I just reviewed an Instagram profile with the username Kill All Fags, and the profile pic was a rainbow flag being crossed out. The implied threat is pretty clear, I think, but I couldn't take it down. And then the other one says, our supervisors insist that LGBT is a concept. And then the other one says, so if I see someone posting kill LGBT, unless they refer to a person or use pronouns, I have to think they're talking about killing an idea. Well, to me, this is sort of needle threading (laughs) at a pretty advanced level and, and for the opposite purpose of what we would hope. Right, right. Yes. And they they say very clearly in their internal guidelines, which I got a hold of, um, but which were not available to the public at the time, um, we are inclined to tolerate content and and not to add friction to the process. Now, friction is a is a business school word for slowing people down so that they don't give us as much of their attention and time and money, right? So um, they're a lot of this has to do with, as you say, tortured logic, tortured rationales that I think even internally don't get fully aired out. You know, there are a lot of internal meetings where where former Facebook employees would, would describe to me, you know, just asking their bosses to level with them and say, okay, can we just be clear that, you know, if Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro or someone, you know, whatever they do, we're not going to kick them off the platform, right? Can we just admit that those people routinely use hate speech on our platform and we're okay with profiting from it? And over and over again, not even internally, not even privately, would they admit to that, right? Because if you think about it, it's a pretty horrible thing to admit to. And just given how the human brain likes to rationalize things, you know, not even Mark Zuckerberg, as rich and cosseted as he is, you know, he doesn't want to look himself in the mirror and say, I'm profiting on a massive scale from hate speech and potential violence. So he tells himself a different story, not only because he wants to, you know, cover himself publicly, but because even privately, he doesn't want to believe that about himself. Now, I think it's clearly true and that the data shows that it's true. But, you know, there, there are ways to rationalize away all kinds of things, especially when you live in a bubble. So yeah, you because you had access to so much internal communication, you could sort of document the way some of these internal debates unfolded, but for the most part, they didn't seem to get to where we want them to get. Um, on the other hand, it did seem as though when things leaked out and went public, when Facebook was called to account in the public square, they were much more likely to back off and maybe remove content. Say some more about that. Yeah, I, I had one former employee just tell me pretty flatly, the only language Facebook understands is public embarrassment. And 
I think to an extent that's true. Um, they, you know, it, it, one of the thorny things here is that I think it's actually even harder with the social media industry than even with other industries to change their minds because I think they themselves are kind of ambivalent. I think, you know, I don't know, but I think if you injected a fossil fuel executive with truth serum, you know, they would know that they're destroying the planet. I mean, I think it's been clear to them for 45 years now that their own data scientists are showing them that fossil fuels are going to bake the planet. I think if you did the same truth serum experiment with a social media executive, they might not actually know whether they feel okay about what they're doing or not. Um, it's, it's much more complicated and it's much newer. Um, so that makes it really complicated, right? Because you can embarrass them, you can give them black eyes in the press. You know, I do it, my friends do it. But it's not like that just immediately is going to dislodge their most fundamental beliefs about themselves and the tools they've built. You know, they really are true believers at this point. And when, you, when, you're, when you've gotten high on your own supply, it's actually harder to, to pry the, the substance out of their hands. So, I mean, there's that element. And then there's also the element of they can always come back to this very convenient, lofty rhetoric about free speech and saying, you know, what would you have us do? Uh, you know, how can we censor the, the most powerful people in the world? And that's a very attractive argument. I think it's a, a, a deeply flawed argument. And I think in most cases, it's just flat out wrong. But you know, it does appeal to enough people for enough time that they can sort of keep kicking the can down the road. We're going to stop there. I really do recommend, I can't recommend enough that people read this article either online or uh, in, in the hard copy of The New Yorker. If you, like me, have it uh, in your mailbox, it's by our guest, Andrew Morantz, uh, and it's why Facebook can't fix itself online. It'll be explicit content in the print edition of the October 19th New Yorker. Andrew Morantz, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Take care. And if you're out there and you uh, like this particular show, you might wish that I were on an actual microphone. But other than that, if you like this particular show and like the fact that we're giving these things a little extra attention at this time, yes, nice people are going to join you right now and ask you to support this show. I will remind you, it is my birthday. So the nice thing to do would be to make a pledge sometime in the next five or six minutes. I really would appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm not a part of a redneck agenda.